0: Welcome to episode 105 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things written to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot.
1: And I'm Kelly. How are you today, Dermot?
0: Very good. Excellent. Uh, Those who have access to the video on our Patreon will see we bought a ring light, which is why we don't look like, or I don't look like, uh, strange creatures. Let me switch it off. I'm going to switch it off for a second, so this might not work.
1: hoping we can bring you a more consistent (laughs) lighting environment. That
0: is what we look like without it.
1: I can't... the screen because i just look at myself so Uh, dermot has turned the screen away from me yes um if you'd like to know what we're talking about uh well i'll get into that in a moment um speaking of things we should get into um we are a blog as well as a podcast and i am right on the brink of bringing you an exciting new blog post it will probably be out by the time this episode is entitled parallax Mm. dermot what is this blog post about?
0: Uh, Dunsync Observatory, the time ball, uh-huh. and the calculation of stellar distances mm-hmm. and the idea of parallax and what is it, because mm-hmm. Bloom is very uh, curious about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the tool used to measure distances in stars, like how far mm-hmm. a star away is dependent on its distance every six months in the sky. Mm-hmm. The bigger the parallax, the closer the star.
1: When we eventually podcast about this, uh, Dermot is going to go hog wild. Mm. Talking about astronomy because this man loves astronomy, Um, and you haven't done the artwork for it yet. Do you have any idea what you're gonna do? (sighs)
0: Something with stars, I think. (laughs)
1: Okay. Well, you, if you want to see what he comes up with, uh, you know, you follow us on social media. We're at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're joining us for the first time, Dermot is not only our resident astronomer but our resident artist and he's done some artwork for this episode as well or you're you're you Go will have that. done it yes do you know what you're gonna draw for our podcast episode today
0: this is uh, the kind of gothic one isn't
1: it? i asked you to do something horrific
0: yes yeah i'll try
1: <laughs> all right uh, we forgot to do this in the last episode but i'm gonna try to remember to ask you again at the end if you got an idea while we're talking all right okay uh, oh, before, before
0: we go mm. on, too, uh, thanks to our Patreons, uh, this light's on you. Um, wasn't cheap.
1: That's the so. next bullet on my list. Good,
0: good. We're on the same mm. frequency. Okay.
1: If you, We've got some shout-outs. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through PayPal or by subscribing to us on Patreon. Um, the money that our very generous donors and patrons have given us really does make a big difference. Um, as Dermot has mentioned a couple of times, we use it to buy a ring light because we, uh, one thing we've been able to do is, you know, dabble a little more in video. So, um, we want to look as beautiful as I hope we sometimes sound. If you do subscribe on Patreon, we'd like to give you a little bonus. Uh, we're wrapping up the month of February right now as we record and we just dropped an episode about Aristotle and his work on the soul and how it shows up in Ulysses. And in our March episode, we're going to tackle a non-Joycean topic. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So it was, it, oh, so right. it was Dermot's right. choice, that's yes. why I'm throwing right. him.
0: Um, we're going to be watching and talking about James Plunkett's um, novel, Strumpet City, and the 1980 uh, television adaptation of that shot by RTE, the Irish TV station. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still well available on a DVD. We have the DVD box set right behind us on the thing here. Mm -hmm. And um, it was remastered by uh, Irish television uh, just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think they they found the original film stock and they did a widescreen remaster of it. So it's better Mm -hmm. than it looked when people watched it back in the day. Mm And it's set in 1913 in Dublin during the lockout, the big strike.
1: It's actually set between 1907 and 1914. Oh, okay. So the time I've read the book.
0: So the time window is much closer to yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Peter Ustinov, Peter O'Toole, and Mm -hmm. Ustinov was there for one scene. (laughs) How much they spent to get him for Mm -hmm. one afternoon, I don't know. uh, To dress him up as King Edward, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, Peter O'Toole does a great Jim Larkin performance. Oh, okay,
1: okay. I didn't realize he played Jim Larkin. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, you know, this is whenever people ask Dermot, what Irish novels should they read? I have listened to him for years, recommend this. And uh, so if you want to read along, you can read it for free at archive.org. You have to make an account, but it's free. um, And you can check out the book like you would a library. Um, and this is also a way of, uh, so we've talked about all the the statues on O'Connell Street. We're going to touch on them in our episode again today. We have talked about, do you remember all the, the O'Connell Street statues?
0: Yes. Yeah. Don't make, I'm not going to, there's O'Brien. Okay. And
1: O'Connell, or... Smith O'Brien, yeah. Gray, mm-hmm. Nelson no longer. Mm-hmm. Father Matthew of yeah, yeah. So Jim Larkin is the other statue. If you go there now, mm. I mean Nelson is no longer there, but uh, Jim Larkin is the final statue we've never talked about. So um, we're going to talk about him and uh, you know a different 20th century work of Irish fiction. Um, very different tone than Ulysses. I know Dermot loves the 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 TV adaptation in particular, and I thought well, I can try and read the book. I don't know if it'll take me too long. We want to get this out sometime in the next month. But I'll tell you what, I i pretty much only read Ulysses as far as novels go, because uh, it takes up a lot of my time. And if you're reading not Ulysses, other books are much easier to read. So mm-hmm. I, it turns out I can actually read very quickly. She
0: said I read, she wrote a, you're 100 pages in the day.
1: Yeah, I'll read it over the next couple of days. But its it's really good. And um, we used to do episodes that Dermot would pitch. And this, if you if you want to get inside the mind of a young Dermot O'Connor, I, I think this is probably the work of uh, this fiction. Uh, I almost a work of fiction, but mm. um, looking back on
0: seminal influences on me as a child, yeah. Strumpet City was one that 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 taught me about mm-hmm. like. Strikes and unions.
1: Mm-hmm. I was gonna say this, if this is what radicalized you as yeah, a, a, it did. A, a boy. It did. Oh
0: no, my parents specifically mm-hmm. told me like uh, you know, this is how the rich would treat the poor. They were mm-hmm. very like very left wing. And and then you'd see those like James Plunkett said he wrote the book as an exorcism and mm-hmm. you can well believe it. Um and uh then the other big influences on me would be the English con- a lot of English stuff note at the English comic 2000 AD, Mm -hmm. um, which had like Alan Moore wrote a lot of those Mm -hmm. stories I didn't realize at the time and uh, Children of the Stones, the 1976 children's TV horror show about uh, Avebury Stone Circle.
1: check out our patreon if you're interested in that it'll all be up there in the next couple of weeks if you'd like to support us in other ways a great way to do that is to leave a review at apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you listen it helps people find the show tell a friend if you think they'd be into it and you can also sign up for our newsletter and get all of this information delivered to your inbox once a month you can do that at our website
0: bloomsandbarnacles.com
1: you can also find information for our paypal and patreon at
0: Bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's
1: right. And I want to give you a heads up too on our next podcast episode. We are going to do a deep dive into the question of who is the man in the Macintosh? One of the great enduring mysteries of Ulysses. If you'd like to weigh in on that, please contact us either via our social media or our email address, which is... Something at bloomsandbarnacles.com. <laughs> blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. And give us your theory because... I'd really like to read out some on the show. We did this in years past when I first wrote the blog version, but I'd like to revisit this because we have new listeners and everyone has a pet theory about this, so send us your theories. Okay, without further ado, should we get into the text? Yes. We are working our way through Ulysses' sixth episode, Hades. We are on pages 107 through 110 today in my edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition if you're reading along at home, and Dermot is going to read, and then we'll discuss.
0: Mr. Bloom admired the caretaker's prosperous bulk. All want to be on good terms with him. Decent fellow, John O'Connell. Real good sort. Keys. Like Keys' ad. No fear of anyone getting out. No pass-out checks. Habeas corpus. I must see about that ad after the funeral. Did I write Ball's bridge on the envelope I took to cover when she disturbed me writing to Martha? Hope it's not chucked in the dead-letter office. Be the better of a shave. Gray sprouting beard. That's the first sign when the hairs come out gray. And temper getting cross. Silver threads among the gray.
1: Thank you, Dermot. All right, what do you think?
0: So uh, we are still like exiting the uh, Glasnevin where um, John O'Connell is the... Um, they are Glasnevin.
1: in Glasnevin Cemetery. Mm-hmm. The funeral mass has been completed. Mm-hmm. And they are walking from the mortuary chapel to Paddy Dignam's grave. Right. And so these are kind of, John O'Connell has stopped to talk to them along the way. Okay. Uh, that was how we left it in our last he episode. He told them the
0: uh, cutie story to try mm-hmm. to distract them from the, the depressing. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, uh, and so this is kind of Bloom's thoughts. I really would have liked to have this all as one, but we'd have a two-hour mm-hmm. episode. There There's a ton of John O'Connell stuff. So if you felt like you didn't get enough John O'Connell last week, mm-hmm. we got a lot more today. Anything in this little chunk here that jumps out at you?
0: Um. Well, no fear of anyone getting out. Like you, I guess it's like once he, you're locked in by him, you're you're in for good because you're in the ground. Habeas corpus. Um, present the body. I think I mm-hmm. uh, usually in law. Like mm-hmm. you know, first the corpse. If there's a murder case, I must see about that. And then his his brain wanders off mm-hmm. uh, to like his ad copy. Um, mm-hmm.
1: he mentions Keyes' ad. Do you know what he's referring to?
0: God, that name rings a bell. I think we've talked about this before, haven't we?
1: I wrote a blog post about it because yes. it comes back in a big way in... Eolus, which is episode number seven mm-hmm. so
0: mm. it doesn't ring i, I mean mm-hmm. the details I, all i know is we've had that name before yeah. Google, my, my brain's going bing 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 good um did i write ball's bridge on the envelope i took to cover when she disturbed me writing to martha is this the pen pal thing yeah. uh, when you... yes
1: it's a little cryptic um i think what he's saying here is that he was writing to martha and then molly kind of interrupted him and he pulled another envelope over it and he's mm-hmm. hoping he wrote the right address on it, uh, otherwise it'll end up in the dead letter office oh, okay okay, that's what I think he's talking about here.
0: right, And then he gets on to thinking about just growing old silver mm-hmm. silver or gray uh, beard mm-hmm. the beard hair goes first, I think, minded mm-hmm. um, um still so some dark hair here, but uh, the facial mm-hmm. hair and flexing in the eyebrows mm-hmm. very distressing. Um, yeah, the hairs come out gray, and mm-hmm. the temper getting cross. that doesn't happen to me because I'm really... <laughs> you are
1: quite a my... <laughs> you need to think Not about a, what a
0: bulliant means. <laughs> is it a bully? No. Okay, a bullying as. bubbly. No, good, good. Yes. Um, e-
1: ebullition is, okay. means boi- bubbling or boiling, and it's mm. a word I know from Ulysses.
0: Mm. I rolled up the. Uh, okay, that's
1: I was going to say kid. the ghost's visiting us. Yes. All right, do you want me to run through this? Do you have any other thoughts?
0: Uh, no, that's okay. All right,
1: keys and keys. So um, keys refers to Alexander Keys's ad, which, you know, Fans of Ulysses will be familiar with. We'll get into that someday. Would we cover Aeolus? But the keys, as the little thing you turn in the mm-hmm. lock, are definitely a recurring motif in Ulysses, and they tend to allude to power and the person who holds the power. And at least you know. So if John O'Connell holds the keys, he's holding some kind of power. What What do you think his power? What's his his domain?
0: No, the graveyard.
1: The graveyard. It, yeah. yeah. The- yeah, the necropolis. And the necro, yeah, well done. Mm-hmm. Um, now, interestingly, our two protagonists, Bloom and Stephen, have both lost their keys. Bloom through forgetfulness, and Stephen willingly gave up his key to Mulligan at the end of Telemachus. Mm-hmm. So they're both keyless gentlemen. Mm. Um, and Bloom kind of knows he he associates here pretty clearly. John O'Connell. And his keys with power, you know, he says all want to be on good terms with him, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you don't want you don't want the superintendent of the cemetery to be angry at you because you know, maybe there'll be nowhere to put your body when you die. We all have to deal with him at some point. Remember, he's Hades; he's the god of death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, O'Connell is a spirit merchant of sorts, so. Alexander Keyes, who Bloom is trying to buy an ad from, is a wine and spirit merchant. John O'Connell is also a sort of spirit merchant. Okay. All right. Um, And his, you know, his job, though, is providing soul the souls of his customers a comfortable birth into the next life. A little bit different. Uh, I suppose with Alexander Keys's sort of spirits, you can also find a sort of a comfortable oblivion. Mm-hmm. Um, the keys also so you know Catholicism plays a big role in all of this as we've talked about many times what do the two keys symbolize in Catholicism
0: I think it's St. Peter's mm-hmm. uh, keys. To yes. he- is it heaven and hell I assume or is it just no, the, gates it's the, of key, heaven? It's
1: the keys of heaven both of them are the yeah. keys to
0: heaven right?
1: Um, there's a silver and a gold one there's specific symbolism to those which I wrote in the blog post about Alexander Keys and I don't I can't remember right now uh, scholar Mark Austin, in his book *The Economy of Ulysses*, directly calls O’Connell a quote terrestrial analog of Saint Peter’s, which mm. I like the way he put that. Uh, but O’Connell does not preside over heaven, uh, but instead he presides over an earthly realm of the dead, of grief, putrefaction, and corpse-eating rats, as we shall see. There’s some really um, beautiful imagery. And by beautiful, I mean horrific imagery in this passage, although I don't think the corpse-eating rats are going to show up today. Okay. Um, so John O'Connell has a sort of psychopompic power, um, and his power is governed by that pair of keys. Okay, Silver Threads Among the Grey, to abruptly change topics, is a reference to a song called Silver Threads Among the Gold. Hmm which uh, is a song about aging lovers. So it's Bloom making a little joke here. Hmm. Uh, Bloom's version as is obviously a little less romantic, you know, with the gray instead of the gold. Um, but this pushes him right through into thoughts of John O'Connell's love life. So you're going to read about that.
0: Okay. Fancy being his wife. Wonder if he had the gumption to propose to any girl. Come out and live in the graveyard. Dangle that before her. That might thrill her first courting death. Shades of night hovering here with all the dead stretched about. The shadows of the tombs when churchyard yawn and Daniel O'Connell must be a descendant, I suppose. Who is this used to say? He was a queer, breedy man. Grey Catholic all the same, like a big giant in the dark. Will-o'-the-wisp. Gas of graves. Want to keep her mind off it to conceive it all. Women especially are so touchy. Tell her a ghost story in bed to make her sleep. Have you ever seen a ghost? Well, I have. It was a pitch-dark night. The clock was on the stroke of twelve. Still they'd kiss all right if properly keyed up. Whores in Turkish graveyards. Learn anything if taken young. You might pick up a young widow here. Men like that. Love among the tombstones. Romeo. Spice of pleasure. In the midst of death we are in life. Both ends meet. Tantalising for the poor dead. Smell of grilled beefsteaks to the starving. Gnawing their vitals. Desire to grig people. Molly wanting to do it at the window. Eight children he has anyway. Thoughts? <laughs> um, hmm. So, uh, let's see. Um. So, the man has eight kids. He lives in the, clearly he lives in the graveyard. That'd be, he, it sounds like they actually Luke's have
1: alleging a... that he lives in the graveyard, or imagining might be hmm. a better way to put it. Okay, okay. Um,
0: hmm. So he said, Daniel O'Connell must be a descendant. I think he means an ancestor, right? Is that usually thinking Daniel O'Connell is your ancestor? You know, he, O'Connell, or or John O'Connell. Because this
1: is kind of the stream of consciousness, sometimes you have to find the mm-hmm. emphasis on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, blah, 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 Daniel O'Connell. You could be like, oh, it must be a descendant, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Who is it used to say? Mm-hmm.
0: You know?
1: mm-hmm. So it could be like that. But yeah, you're, you got it.
0: Yeah. And then he's going into all the, yeah, the gothic horror of the graveyard Mm -hmm. and people are titillated by it. Um, mm -hmm. That's pretty clear. Like I, the only thing that kind of jumped out of me was the word Grig people, desire Mm -hmm. to Grig people. That's a word I haven't, Mm -hmm. I haven't stumbled across that.
1: I do not know what that means. Mm -hmm. I know it's in my annotation, but I didn't, I didn't put it in my notes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have to Google that one yourself, boys and girls. Sorry. Mm -hmm. All right. There are lots of other things I would like to touch on here. Uh, The first of which is you asked if John O'Connell lived in the graveyard. Mm -hmm. He, the real John, I don't know about the Ulysses John O'Connell. He's a little bit different in some ways. But the real John O'Connell and his wife and their large family did not live in the graveyard, just nearby. Um, There's, I mean, we've been to Glasnevin several times. There's not really a house there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, also why? Like, there's plenty of houses around Glasnevin. Yeah. So... Um, but Bloom has a a colorful and at times prurient imagination. And so I think he enjoys imagining, you know, trying to convince a girl to come live in the graveyard with him. Um, let's talk about Daniel O'Connell. Mm-hmm. Lots of O'Connells in this. Do you know who his uh, uh, Odyssean counterpart is?
0: Mm-mm. No, no idea. Uh, I'll
1: give you a hint. He was played by Kevin Sorbo in a popular TV adaptation.
0: Yes. Uh, Hercules. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> a big giant in the dark, as Bloom calls him. Yeah, he's sort of this, you know, legendary, larger-than-life figure that, in this case, his monument, is his giant phallic symbol is literally looming over them. Mm-hmm. You can see it from everywhere in the the graveyard, for sure, and through much of Glasnevin as well. So... Bloom makes some uh, allegations against the Great Liberator here. Uh, he says, "Who is this?" Used to say he was a queer, breedy man, great Catholic, all the same, like a big giant in the dark. So, what is is Bloom alleging about? Oh, he's a womanizer. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I wanted to know before we get into this: Have you have you ever heard this? I think we've talked a lot about you know Daniel O'Connell and hmm. you know the end of the penal laws and like his. You know, working for Catholic emancipation, kind of as this great historic figure in Ireland. You know, all the monuments to him. So mm-hmm. we talked about what a great guy he is. But have you ever heard of a, a darker side to Daniel O'Connell? I haven't. No. Just mm. he's just like a, a great guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Now, other people might have. I just mm-hmm. I'll like speak for myself.
1: Are Are you Are you up for hearing about the dark side of Daniel O'Connell and his? Uh, cheating heart oh God, Hank gonna, Williams would we're gonna cancel him we? we're not gonna cancel him I mean life cancelled him already he yeah. died in 1847 so yeah. um you know so I noticed this first in the Gifford and Seidman annotation where they mention a rumor in Dublin that Daniel O'Connell had multiple children outside of his marriage mm-hmm. uh, And you know he is famous as a, a Catholic he loved Rome so much his heart was preserved there after he died um You know, if he's a father of multiple children in Ireland, you know, he makes him also kind of a literal father of the country. Mm -hmm. So I looked into this. Uh, I found in a... This, if you really want some deep thoughts on Ulysses, this is a great book, uh, critical essays. Um, And Robert Adams wrote the chapter on Hades. And this is actually in a footnote, but his chapter is one of my favorites in it. But Adams wrote, quote, Everywhere we look... Daniel O'Connell is associated with dark underground fabulous fertility. Um, And he also quotes a famous Irish senator by the name of W.B. Yates in 1925. Now I went and looked this up because there are transcripts of the senatorial debates from the Irish Senate, the Shannon online. um, And I will include the link to this in our show notes. You can go read it yourself. Um, But Yates said, and now the context for this, I've seen this quoted several places out of context, so I'll give the context. It was a debate about whether or not divorce should be le- should be legal in the Irish Republic. And in the 20s, they decided yay or nay for divorce. No, nay. Yes. Nay. And Yates did not agree with that. And he was not Catholic. I think it was mainly a, a religious reason, mm-hmm. you know, which he said as well and um in the debate he he kind of pointed out and we're talking about strumpet city because this is something that plunkett really like explicitly lays out in that book as you look at the monuments that are on o'connell street and you have daniel o'connell and you have nelson who's a famous adulterer parnell adulterer adulterer and daniel o'connell really the the sort of working-class heroes of Strumpet City really, especially the very socialist ones, really go hard on Daniel O'Connell being kind of, uh, you know, a man about town, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, And Yates said, it was said about O'Connell in his own day that you could not throw a stick over a workhouse wall without hitting one of his children. (laughs) Okay. He said that on the floor of the Irish Senate. And it was, you know, arguing too, like, You know, we're so critical of people's marriages, especially Parnell. Like, his whole career was ruined. But, you know, there are other people who have similar allegations that we're fine with. Like, we're very, uh, the Irish people are very uneven in their criticism of people's marital sins. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, you know, it it seems there's probably some truth to this. There was a, um, in the early 2000s, a a biography of Daniel O'Connell by, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Patrick M... Gagan. Uh, okay. Uh, entitled King Dan Colon, The Rise of Daniel O'Connell, in which he alleges also that Daniel O'Connell was a bit of a rake. And before he his political career kind of kicked in, he you know was involved in many affairs, possible assaults, secret children, debts, and also he was a dueler. He killed a man in a duel. Hmm. So, um... Yeah, so I. What do you think?
0: Yeah, people tend to get sanitized, like mm-hmm. after death. Like, yes, it seems to be like the knowledge that that would be more widespread in the past, and yeah, by the time we were growing up, maybe nobody cared. It was so long ago, but still.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I think too that like, I you know, rights for Irish Catholic people are just unquestioned at this stage, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's no religious oppression against Catholics in Ireland really, mm-hmm. at this stage. So, um. It's something that was really emphasized by James Plunkett, which I was, it it was a nice little, as I'm reading that novel and researching this, a nice little synchronicity, you could call it, but Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, yeah, I think um, we'll save some of it for the other, we'll save this discussion for when we talk about Strumpet City, so join our Patreon if you'd like to know more, (laughs) but um, yeah. So speaking of fertility, uh, which Daniel O'Connell is being accused of excess fertility, Mm -hmm. um, Bloom mentions that John O'Connell and his wife have eight children. So clearly she's not turned off by the graveyard. Mm -hmm. Now, we said O'Connell is Hades. Who is Hades' wife in Greek mythology? Oh, God. Persephone. Persephone, yeah. What's what's the deal with Persephone? Uh, she got st- stuck
0: in a marriage she didn't really like, wasn't that it? um it was some mm-hmm. sort of deal or a uh, pact where she had to be underground for mm-hmm. three days of the year or something like that.
1: So Persephone, yeah, she's a, she's a fertility goddess, a mm-hmm. spring goddess. Yeah. And Hades took a shine to her and said, why don't you come visit me? Mm. And she was told before she went, you can go, but don't eat anything while you're there. Right. And She ate three seeds from a pomegranate, which, why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Other than for symbolic reasons, I can't imagine Mm. I'm going to go there and eat nothing but three pomegranate seeds, but she did. And so now every year for three months, she has to retreat underground. And we know those three months as winter Mm. because all the fertility goes away. And then it comes back in the spring when Persephone re-enters the overworld, Mm. be the opposite of the underworld. Anyway, so she's a fertility goddess. Mrs. O'Connell is also a bit of a fertility goddess. Hmm. So that's all I have to say about that. Why don't we move on to the next passage? Okay.
0: He's seen a fair share go under in his time, lying around him field after field. Holy fields. More room if they buried him standing. Sitting or kneeling, you couldn't. Standing? His head might come up someday above ground in a landslip with his hand pointing. All honeycombed, the ground must be. Oblong cells. And very needy keeps it too. Trim grass and edgings. His garden major gamble calls Mount Jerome. Well, so it is. Ought to be flowers of sleep. Chinese cemeteries with giant poppies growing produce, the best opium, Mastiansky told me. The botanic gardens are just over there. It's the blood sinking, and the earth gives new life. Same idea, those jaws they said kill the Christian boy. Every man is price. Well-preserved, fat corpse. Gentleman, Epicure, invaluable for fruit garden, a bargain. By carcass of William Wilkinson, auditor and accountant, lately deceased. Three pounds thirteen and six. With thanks.
1: Okay. So Dermot, what do you think? Could you bury people standing up?
0: You could, and it wouldn't be nice as the bodies decompose and end up as a soup in the bottom of a very long box, because the box would basically be empty at the top, and you'd have like a little,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a little human goop at the yeah. bottom it wouldn't be nice
1: but it wouldn't that be the same with are horizontal
0: well you, you end up as a soup but it's a horizontal soup it's like it's spread out <laughs> right like it's it's at least it's sort of like sort of dignified like, looking i don't think like if if the whole mm-hmm. thing just dis- disintegrates and it's all a jumble and mm-hmm. and you were to open that coffin and and there just be this like blob jumble at the bottom bones. a jumble of bones and yeah, yeah.
1: i think too if you, if you take a Christian approach to it, mm. you're lying people to rest so that they can lie there in some sort of composed state, mm-hmm. though they will be decomposed as well, mm. so that they can rise for Judgment Day. Right. Um, which is why they are always buried facing... East. Right, mm. as our friend Martin Mooney has told us many times. Mm. So I suppose you could be standing and facing east, but... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know how the church would view that. It's no. a possibly a good business move because I think Bloom's idea is you could sell more grave plots if they're vertical, but uh, maybe a non-starter for the faithful. Hmm. Um, is there anything else in this that is okay, interesting um, to you?
0: let's see major gamble calls mount jerome i I, mount jerome's a protestant Mm. graveyard his garden
1: major gamble calls mount jerome read it like you're yoda
0: his garden major Gamble. okay does that help yes it does major gamble calls his garden mount jerome
1: yeah mount jerome's a protestant cemetery and major major gamble is john o'connell's counterpart there oh i see he calls it his garden okay yeah one yard yeah Shout out to the Botanic Gardens, one of my favorite spots in Dublin. Right next to it. I don't know that they're actually fed by the blood sinking in the earth.
0: No, they're not.
1: Maybe there's some trees that are right at the edge, they can kind of Mm -hmm. put their roots under and drink drink up the people. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Okay. Um, All right, let's talk about something that's not funny. Um, There's one... Sentence in here. I wanted to remark upon. Bloom says same idea. Those Jews, they said, killed the Christian boy. Do you know what this refers to? Is this
0: is the crucifixion of Jesus, or what? What's he talking about
1: here? Well, I guess you could you could look at that as talking about Jesus, because there are people who blame the Jews for killing yeah, Jesus. Yeah, blood libel. But it's a blood libel is a larger concept. So right. one, um, so blood libel is a concept is basically blaming Jewish people for murders that they didn't do. Mm -hmm. So a very the blood libel writ large is saying that the Jews killed Jesus, which the Romans did that. Mm -hmm. But yes, anyway, um, what blood libel became over time is there's this very persistent story that Jews would kidnap Christian children, murder them, and then use their blood for ritual purposes it's usually connected to passover and making the matzah for passover um and this thought that it's kind of comes from this belief that you know the jews um killed christ at the crucifixion right. obviously there's an association between passover and easter they're around the same time the last supper was a passover seder Um, So this is what Bloom is referencing. This is this really persistent idea that kind of rises up in the Middle Ages in a big way. And every so often there is an accusation of blood libel against a Jewish person um, at the death of a child. And it could be unrelated, but a a child dies somewhere in Europe and a local Jewish person is blamed for it. Mm -hmm. And then basically... It's, it's all really horrible that they're lynched by the townspeople. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is like this this story is very non-specific here but um, it, it could it's played out again and again throughout European history. Given and Seidman and their annotation mention this um, as an anachronistic an anachronism that shows up in Ulysses referencing a case from 1913 um, that kind of follows this pattern in Ireland. But there are so many instances just in Irish history, including, um, I think in 1903, there was a blood libel accusation um, in which a a Jewish person was accused of murdering a Christian child for their blood. So I don't know that this is anachronistic because this is such a trope that comes up again and again. Um, Hi, this is Kelly. I just wanted to add in a quick correction here, we're talking about the you know, potential blood libel cases that it would have happened in, in and around the time of Ulysses. I feel like I've said that it would happen in Ireland. Both the cases I'm referring to, one in 1903 and one in 1913, happened in what was then the Russian Empire, so places in Eastern Europe um, where... Anti-Semitism was really on the rise at that time. It was a problem everywhere in Europe at that time, but it was really hard for Russian Jews and other Eastern European Jews. So I wanted to make sure I got that detail correct, but I hope my point stands that I disagree with Gifford and Seidman that it would have been anachronistic to refer to blood libel as, you know, as something that happened after the 1904, because it happened a lot of times before that, it was a real problem um, in Europe at that time. So, sorry for the mistake. Back to the regular programming. Um, The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum says that blood libel was very central to modern anti-Semitism. Like, anti-Semitism has always kind of been a thing, Mm. but uh, it really grew in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, and that blood libel was this common theme that would come up when people wanted to support their anti-Semitic beliefs at that time. Um, And it was also very popular amongst the Nazis. And so post-Holocaust, it kind of died off because people felt very differently about anti-Semitism. Well, uh, there's still anti-Semitism, but I think using the same propaganda that the Nazis did kind of went out of fashion for a bit. I mean, as, a, as an aside, this story really reminds me of the satanic panic that came up in the 80s and somewhat in the 90s um, of Satanists who wanted to murder children and use their blood for ritual purposes. So I think this belief that there's like a shadowy cabal of people who want to murder mm-hmm. Christian children and drink their blood has never gone away. But who's doing it depends on the cultural context Um Either way, as a result, a lot of innocent people are, you know, lives are destroyed mm. because of it. Mm. Um, there's also this this imagery kind of persists in vampire mythology as well, which vampires end up being associated with Bloom throughout Ulysses as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this also pops up in Ithaca, the second to last chapter in Ulysses, when Stephen recites a song called The Jew's Daughter, that is also like a, a blood libel trope of a a girl who lures a young boy into her yard and then cuts his head off hmm. with scissors, I believe. Um, it's also very similar to the prioress's tale in the Canterbury Tales. And the thing with the Jew's daughter is that that would be Millie Bloom, right? Right. Um, but yeah, this is a you know. A, specific kind of anti-Semitism that does come up in ulysses from time to time it's clearly in bloom's mind with all this kind of bloody imagery we've talked about um christian imagery using blood about being washed in the blood of christ and things like this so mm-hmm. it's uh yeah blood is a you know with a, a religious angle to it Yeah, it's kind of come up again here um it's very dark uh blood libel it's not true at all i, I don't know if i need to be that explicit but if you're wondering at all it, blood libel is not a real thing mm-hmm. it's it's just be, to excuse people's hate crimes against jewish people so all right i'm sorry it's very mm. dark okay uh well let's uh talk about um more death great
0: i dare say the soil will be quite fat with corpse manure bones flesh nails charnel houses Dreadful. Turning green and pink decomposing. Rock quick in damp earth. The lean old ones tougher. Then a kind of tallowy kind of a cheesy. Then begin to get black. Black treacle oozing out of them. Then dried up. Death moths. Of course the cells are whatever. They are go on living. Changing about. Live forever practically. Nothing to feed on. Feed on themselves. Okay. So what are we
1: describing here?
0: Decomposition of a
1: corpse. Yes. Yeah. And this is Bloom's version. So we've talked about Bloom. It really doesn't have any strong spiritual belief. Hmm. Um, he's a, you know. So this is Bloom's version of everlasting life after death. Is that when you die, you decompose, and then you are, you know, you, you sort of sink into the soil, uh, and your cells or whatever they are go on living. Um, and then, you know, they are eaten and then reproduced. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Circle of life. Everlasting life. Uh, This view is not endorsed by the church. Mm -hmm. Um, Though it does remind me of some of Stephen Dedalus's thoughts about the drowned corpse in Proteus. Do you remember remember those? Mm. You want me to read you some of it? Yeah. A corpse rising salt white from the undertow, bobbing apace, apace, a porpoise landward. Sunk though he be beneath the watery flow, we have him easy now. I'm kind of... Paraphrasing some of this, a uh, bag of or not, but uh, 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 shortening it, a uh, bag of corpse gas sopping in foul brine. A quiver of minnows, fat of a spongy titbit, flash through the slits of his button trouser fly. Dead breaths, I living breathe, tread dead dust, devour a urinous awful from all dead, hauled stark over the gunwale. He breathes upward the stench of his green grave. His leprous nose hole snoring to the sun. So, um, Joyce has a thing with corpse gas as well. He does. I think he's, he's just amused by the idea of corpse gas because it's mentioned, and Proteus is mentioned here. He has a thing that I think he might have made up about the the, the corpse gas in St. Warburg's church. Mm-hmm. And that he had a joke about the organ somehow being played by corpse gas <laughs> that is mentioned in the critical essays as well. I, he just had a, a thing like George George yeah George Joyce James Joyce was a weirdo mm-hmm. um he definitely had a thing for farts yeah and other types of gas so I think this probably mm. you know I and I think I commented when we first talked about this like drowned corpse and his corpse gas that it reminded me of the farting corpse portrayed by Daniel Radcliffe in the movie Swiss Army Man mm-hmm. Joyce really would
0: have liked that he movie. He would have loved that movie. He would have yeah. loved that movie. Pythagoreans also believed that you lost a bit of your soul every time mm-hmm. you farted. Oh, really? And that beans had. <laughs> were had you, know, you couldn't eat beans because the fact that when you <laughs> ate beans, you farted meant that there was a soul in the bean. That the bean was somehow a magical or a living uh, thing. It's,
1: it's the magical fruit.
0: Yeah, yeah it had a soul. <laughs> eat your beans, kids. Make your souls mm-hmm. bigger or eat somebody else's. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wonder.
1: I guess it was the musical fruit, not the magical fruit. It's not a fruit.
0: Well, keep an eye open if he ever mentions the Pythagoreans. He had a good education.
1: (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's continue reading more disgusting stuff.
0: But they must breed a devil of a lot of maggots. Soil must be simply swirling with them. Your head, it simply swirls. Those pretty little seaside girls. He looks cheerful enough over it. Gives him a sense of power, seeing all the others go under first. Wonder how he looks at life. Cracking his jokes too. Warms the cockles of his heart. The one about the bulletin. Spurgeon went to heaven 4am this morning, 11pm closing time. Not arrived yet. Peter. The dead themselves, the men anyhow, would like to hear an odd joke or the women to know what's in fashion. A juicy pear or ladies punch. Hot, strong and sweet. Keep out the damp. You must laugh sometimes, so better do it that way. Gravediggers in Hamlet. Shows the profound knowledge of the human heart. Don't joke about the dead for two years at least. De mortuus nil nisi prius. Go out a morning first. Hard to imagine his funeral. Seems a sort of a joke. Read your own obituary notice. They say you live longer. Gives you second wind. New lease of life.
1: All right. Thoughts.
0: <laughs> um, again, more composition. Then he's he's talking um, when he's talking. Wonder how he looks at life. He's talking about O'Connell.
1: He is. Yeah. Um.
0: So he's cracking jokes to warm the cockles of his heart. So he's probably doing it himself as a coping mechanism, not just to um, make life easier for the other mourners. Um, so then this run on joke, Spurgeon, went to heaven 4 a.m. this morning, 11 p.m. Closing time, not arrived yet. Um, Peter, and, and it's like, that, I, I, I know there's a joke in there. Damn mm-hmm. if I can figure it out. Um, the dead themselves, the men anyhow would like to hear a nod joke. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, new people coming up to heaven, I think, with new material. Is that it? Um, let's see. The grave diggers in Hamlet. I think that I'm vaguely remembering they're like two of those comic side characters, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, don't know what the Latin is. Dei mortuis nil nisi prius. Not about a car. Go out a morning first. Um, hard to imagine his funeral. He's talking about O'Connell. I think it's, it?
1: it's uh it's ambiguous isn't it mm, yeah yeah
0: because um, if he's the guy I, who owns yeah. who basically is the master of the graveyard how could he ever die I, like, yeah it's, it's like him. it's like a doctor getting sick yeah, yeah. but
1: I think it's purposely vague <clears throat> you know if he likes to play with those pronouns yeah okay, yeah. okay. um Bloom mentions towards the beginning, gives him a sense of power seeing all the others go under first. So mm. this is sort of a, a darker view of, of like Jolly John O'Connell and all his little stories and jokes and his yeah. good nature. Um, he, so Bloom's kind of taking a little bit of a darker thought. And you'll notice right at the beginning he says, soil must be simply swirling with them. Mm. And then he thinks, your head, it simply swirls those pretty little seaside girls. Right. This is what makes him go dark. Do you know what he's referring to here? Is that a song? It is a song. And who likes to sing that song? Was it Molly? No. No.
0: I can't remember. I know we've counted this before, though.
1: Blazes Boylan likes this song. And Millie referred to it in her letter as Boylan's Seaside Girls. Mm -hmm. So I think he thinks maggots swirling, swirls, seaside girls. And then he gets real dark for a minute. He gets real dark here. Um. Yeah, and John O'Connell, who seemed, you know, like such a kindly fellow, now seems kind of like a creep. Mm -hmm. Um, Spurgeon, uh, a very obscure reference to something that happened in that era. So I found there's a great website called James Joyce Online Notes. They wrote a little thing about it. So I will link that if you want to read the whole thing. And you can read this whole pamphlet on their site if you want. But... It's referencing a, I guess, a bulletin maybe called by a man named G.W. Foote called Flowers of Free Thought. And he questioned in his writings many Christian ideas. He was not a fan of Christianity. And Spurgeon refers to British evangelical preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. um, Upon his death, about a week after his death, uh, his wife was asked about it, his late wife. Uh, Reverend Spurgeon and she remarked that he was quote seven days in heaven so he died a week before they said wife how you doing and she said you know my husband seven days in heaven you got it yeah Uh, foot asked in his pamphlet are we sure about that are we sure he's in heaven do you know for sure he's in heaven Which is kind of a dick move, really. Mm. But Bloom then says, uh, the one about the bulletin. So cr- uh, cracking his jokes, too, warms the cockles of his heart. Bloom's being a little sarcastic about O'Connell. Uh, the one about the bulletin. Like, did, did is he telling G.W. Foote's joke? Uh, Spurgeon went to heaven for him this morning, 11 p.m. Closing time not arrived yet. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, is he telling that joke? Right. He thinks he's so freaking funny. Right. Is he telling that joke? Because Bloom, this is dark Bloom now. Um, the dead themselves, the men anyhow, would like to hear an odd joke or the women to know what's in fashion. This is a little comment about Bloom, that O'Connell kind of tells these jokes for the living. And maybe the dead would like some jokes too. I don't really have a lot to say about this. It's, you know, is the idea that the dead are kind of all, you know, incubed, mm-hmm. to use a, a term, uh, confined in their coffins under the ground, mm-hmm. but they still, they're lent some degree of sentience. And they might like a little bit of gossip or a joke too, yes, yeah. which is uh, the premise of uh, an Irish language novel um, that w- had no bearing on Joyce because it was—I think it was published in 1949. But I mentioned it to Martin when we were last in Glasnevin. But it's called in Irish; it's called *Crainacilia*. It has various translations of that title. Uh, but that's the premise of that book: is that there, it's uh, all the characters are corpses in a graveyard who are looking forward to new people being buried because then they get gossip right. from above ground. Yeah, And so I won. I there's no way that Joyce could have been influenced by this. He didn't read or speak Irish and it was written after his death, but it makes me wonder if uh, Martin Kine, who wrote that novel saw this line and ran with it. Hmm. So his work has often been compared to Joyce's. Um, but no, I just, I don't, you know, I, there, I just I just noticed that, and I thought, oh, I've I've always kind of liked that idea. I haven't read his novel because I don't I don't read Irish very well either, like James Joyce. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'll read it in translation maybe. All right. Speaking of translation, poor translations, uh, or just translation in general, uh, the Latin "De mortuis nil nisi prius." This is actually a hilarious Latin joke. So. Uh, this is improper Latin. The Mm -hmm. proper Latin phrase, um, is de mortuis nil nisi bonum, which means of the dead speak nothing but good. Mm -hmm. And I think this was a common phrase because you know where else this line appears? Strumpet city. Okay. Uh, there, there is a scene in Glasnevin cemetery in that book and it's accurately quoted by one of the, the working men who are in attendance at the funeral. Right. So, I would guess the implication then is it's a really common phrase right. that we don't use anymore. Um,
0: you know, because, Occasionally, like people in yeah. my parents' generation would drop some Latin. Mm-hmm. My dad was saying a Latin yeah. once, and it's just something they they were pre-Vatican II, mm-hmm. so they picked up like a lot of phrases and things. Mm-hmm. Another one was nolly me tangere." Mm-hmm. Somebody was described as, "Oh, she's a nolly me tangere," mm-hmm. and the "Touch me not." When Christ comes out of the grave, mm-hmm. somebody reaches to touch him and he says, nolly me tangere." So, mm-hmm. pre-Vatican II Catholics would have. Lot of mm-hmm. maybe knowing what that was a yeah. reference to, so
1: and now our heathens like us don't know it. No, no. So nisi bonum is what it should say, um, but he says nisi prius, which means unless before in Latin. This is a legal term, and I'm not going to explain what it means because I will definitely get it wrong, and I know we have lawyers who listen, so they know what it means. And if you want to know what it means, I it, there are lengthy. Descriptions on Google. So a nice try Bloom with your clever Latin. You didn't get it right. This is uh, James Joyce's little jokey joke in the midst of this very dark stream of consciousness uh, about the importance of humor and death, you know. Hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, the phrase de mortuos neil nisi prius doesn't mean anything. Okay. It's nonsense. Okay. Um, but if you know that phrase, you're like, oh, Bloom. Okay.
0: How many have you for tomorrow? The caretaker asked. Two, Corny Kelleher said. Half ten and eleven. The caretaker put the papers in his pocket. The barrow had ceased to trundle. The mourners split and moved to each side of the hole, stepping with care around the graves. The gravediggers bore the coffin and set its nose on the brink, looping the bands round it. Burying him. We come to bury Caesar. His eyes of March or June. He doesn't know who is here nor care. Now, who is that lanky-looking galoot over there on the Macintosh? Now, who is he I'd like to know? Now, I'd give a trifle to know who he is. Always someone turns up you never dreamt of. A fellow could live on his lonesome all his life. Yes, he could. Still, he'd have to get someone to sod him after he died, though he could dig his own grave. We all do. Only man buries. No, ants too. First thing strikes anybody, bury the dead. Say Robinson Crusoe was true to life. Well then, Friday buried him. Every Friday it buries a Thursday, if you come to look at it. Oh, poor Robinson Crusoe. How could you possibly do so?
1: <laughs> you're, you're chuckling? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Still
0: cracking jokes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like right at the actual grave, with mm-hmm. the hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. It's still cracking jokes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Anything else you want to comment on?
0: Um, Oh, the man in the Macintosh. Yes. So it's definitely described in a way that's kind of mysterious. A lanky looking glute. This is almost breaking the fourth wall. This is like Joyce himself saying,
1: I wonder who he is. Do you know who he is? Well, speaking of breaking the fourth wall, that is one of the the theories. Mm -hmm. I don't know we should keep this in, but that's, yeah, that's one of the theories. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're a character in the novel and it's being written and you look up, who do you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joyce himself. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, if you have a theory about the man in the Macintosh, write to us at
0: bloomsbarnacles.com. Oh, what? <laughs> Blooms and Barnacles at gmail.com.
1: bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Okay, okay. Uh, so he says, We come to bury Caesar. When was Caesar killed?
0: Wasn't it Ides of March? Yeah. The, uh, When's the e-
1: Ides of March? Eighteenth of March. Fifteenth of March. Ah, okay. And you know, every month has an Ides. Mm-hmm. It's the the midpoint of the month, and some months it's fifteen, and it was for like. Hmm. Like calendar purposes in ancient Rome. Hmm. Again, if you want a detailed description of what an ides is, you go to Google. I'm I'm not going to go deeply into it now. Hmm. But March, some months it's the fifteenth, and some months it's a thirteenth. Hmm, okay. When is the ides of June? Sixteenth. It's the thirteenth. Thirteenth. That makes no sense. There's thirty days. Who in died June. on the ides of June in 1904? Take it up with the Romans, man. Uh, it's a Patty yeah. Oh, okay. Paddy Dignum died on the Ides of June. Okay. Much as Caesar died on the Ides of March. Mm, okay. Okay.
0: Calends being a Latin word for some aspect of the year and mm-hmm. calendar resulted result from that. hmm Yeah. All right. Wacky people. Dermot. Yes.
1: Do ants bury their dead?
0: I don't think they do. I think they recycle them. I think they're good little environmentalists. <laughs> they recycle the dead. I think they recycle them, put them back in the pot.
1: Yeah, I could be wrong. They do bury their dead. Do they? They stack them up and they bury them. Oh, I don't. I and I think yeah. When you're saying they kind of recycle them and you know yeah, they it's more like that. There aren't little ant funerals. Mm. Um, Crows have funerals, but not ants. But termites and bees also have funerals for their dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, and I have a little story from National Public Radio uh, program. All Things Considered, entitled How Ants Bury Their Dead, if you would like to know more about that. It okay. is linked in our show notes at
0: bloomsandbarnacles.com.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, poor Old Robinson Crusoe is a nursery rhyme. Do you want to read the original Yep. that Bloom changes?
0: Mm-hmm. Poor old Robinson Crusoe, poor old Robinson Crusoe. They made him a coat of an old nanny goat. I wonder how they could do so. With a ring-a-ting-tang and a ring-a-ting-tang. Poor old Robinson Crusoe.
1: So Bloom's version is maybe a little more death-focused. Uh, but he, he's got Robinson Crusoe all upside down too. Because in the book Friday, his man Friday predeceases Robinson Crusoe. No, you spoiled the book. <laughs> it's, well, you had hundreds of years mm-hmm. to read it and you didn't take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, spoilers for Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. Also, when I was looking this up, a thought crossed my mind, and I assure you no, Willem Defoe and Daniel Defoe are not related. She
0: was very upset by
1: that. I was not very upset by it, but I was kind of hoping they would be. <laughs> um so bloom, but Bloom here, despite that, you know, Bloom makes mistakes all the time. Who doesn't? Uh, but I think Bloom is kind of just setting himself up for a great one liner. Uh, every Friday buries a Thursday if you come to look at it. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's a—he's not a gloomy person in in general. Like he has these little, you know, detours of darkness. But Bloom is is actually a very positive person all around. Mm. And, you know, he sees John O'Connell trying to like raise people's spirits with his little corny anecdotes and that. But yeah, but he's doing it to himself. Does it to himself? Mental, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah, he has he has real—he's dealt with real grief. Like mm-hmm. he's lost a father yeah. and a son. Yeah. Um, Patty wasn't that close to, but it still hits you mm-hmm. to see a, you know, someone around the same age as you died that you knew. Yeah. Um, he cared enough to come to his funeral mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, I think he, you know, yeah, he's trying to keep up his own spirits. He's doing the same as yeah. John O'Connell. All right. Our last passage for this week. Poor
0: Dignam, his last lie on the earth in his box. When you think of them, all it does is seem a waste of wood, all gnawed through. They could invent a handsome beer with a kind of panel sliding. Let it down that way. Aye, but they might object to be buried out of another fellow's. They're so particular. Lay me in my native earth. Bit of clay from the Holy Land. Only a mother and deadborn child ever buried in the one coffin. I see what it means. I see. To protect him as long as possible, even in the earth. The Irishman's house is his coffin. Embalming in catacombs, mummies the same idea.
1: Okay. And that's where we're going to end today so uh thoughts on this no
0: it's again he's trying to invent like a like i guess like a sort of a coffin that would lower you but he'd keep like keep you down there take the wood back out and recycle the coffin this is
1: a kind of sliding panel so i think how i've always interpreted this is that there's a coffin with a trap door in it and Mm -hmm. they kind of you fall down and then it closes back up and you could put another guy in there move it to another grave pull the lever he falls in the grave swings closed again i maybe a a businessman's Mm -hmm. idea but probably a non-starter to you know whoever's related to the corpse Mm. what do you think i'm thinking there's a business business opportunity (laughs) (laughs) yeah another brilliant leopold bloom invention Mm -hmm. million pound idea um he says there's you know but he's like oh they're so particular People wouldn't want to watch grandma falling through the, <laughs> through the trapdoor coffin. Bloom says, mm, "bit of clay from the Holy Land," and I was interested to learn that this is part of Jewish burial custom—a uh, preference for or a desire for uh, soil of of Israel. Um, if they're not buried in Israel, mm-hmm. to be part of the the, the process, so. I found this information from Chabad.org. They are an Orthodox Jewish organization, but I, I find a good resource for uh, very detailed descriptions of Jewish culture. And this is what they have to say about it:
0: It is an age-old desire of Jewish people to be buried in the land of Israel because of its sanctity, which is said to aid in the soul's atonement. When burial occurs in any other country, the Hevra Kadisha places earth from the land of Israel in the casket.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it seems like Bloom does have some ideas about Jewish burial customs. Mm-hmm. He's obviously not a very observant Jew, and he does have a, a fairly atheistic worldview, even more than Stephen, who professes to not believe anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would guess that he has some knowledge of this from his, his father's funeral. Right. You know, who, did try to teach him about Judaism as a kid, and it mm-hmm. just kind of it didn't take. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, he remarks also only a mother and deadborn child ever buried in one coffin. I d- did some digging into this, and I didn't find a, what I felt was a enough information to satisfy me. I'd, you know, so it's something I'd like to know more about. But um, it does seem like there are instances if a, a mother dies in childbirth, and her child dies as well, that they would be buried together. But I, I yeah, I I would... Generally, the rule seems to be one person per coffin. Yeah. Um, and finally, the other thing I pulled out of this section, I'd like you as an Irish person to comment on this, mm-hmm. the phrase, the Irishman's house is his coffin. Mm-hmm. What is the original uh, phrase? The
0: Englishman's house is his castle.
1: Yes. So... Uh, when when you hear the Irishman's house is his coffin, what mm-hmm. comes to mind?
0: Yeah, it's a it's very big contrast with the with the British mentality of mm-hmm. having your own little turrets and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a much more depressing uh, uh, catchphrase, mm-hmm. um, harder sell on that with the ad copy.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think this says anything about um, Irish culture's relationship with death?
0: Oh, well, much closer to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's a lot of death denial, especially in American culture. Mm-hmm where I think you're meant to live forever, mm-hmm. you diet right and all that. I think Irish people, they, Irish people will diet and do all that. But I think the idea that I'm going to live forever uh, wouldn't fly. Mm-hmm. And I think in England, maybe less so than America. But there's still an element, I think, of that there. Mm-hmm. Not sure exactly how, because they both countries were f- are very similar in many ways. Mm-hmm. But there's there's definite differences. You notice it like maybe it's just like uh, centuries of the Irish just not having an agency over their own country, mm-hmm. maybe it just makes you more like gloomy, but I think it was there before the English, honestly. I think a lot of people blame the English for things that were there or the Catholic Church for things that were always kind of in the country mm-hmm. like long, long ago. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's odd. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. I wonder, too, like the Romans never came to Ireland. So, you know, we were also like different in that respect, too. It's one the, of the, the more Celtic and Scotland, too, one of the more Celtic outposts. Scotland had the English wash over them, way that we, we mm. didn't. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I wonder if like we are actually a holdout of the original kind of Celtic worldview. Mm. Um, what we call Celtic anyway, whatever they call yeah. themselves. Um, also, like I also think too, like if you were a Celt and say in Roman Britain and things got really hairy, I think you would just cross the sea to Ireland. They knew it was there. It was just getting a boat, paddle, and don't come back. So maybe the people that came here were really really pissed off Mm -hmm. you know and and it just like made the culture even more gloomy okay like it's even rainier here than in france Mm -hmm. but there's no romans but by god it's damp and and we're all we all got our asses that's what the
1: sign says at the irish border it's the (laughs) there's no romans here but by god it's damp. yeah yeah look at that bog
0: goes on forever Mm -hmm. yeah put some bodies in it
1: do you have any other closing thoughts uh, I don't think
0: so. I think now it's, it's it's interesting to compare like Bloom's, mm-hmm. I think his cultural Jewishness with mm-hmm. his Catholic imprint. There's a bit of both, but I think the Jewish is a stronger mm-hmm. um, like if, okay. you to, if you had to if you had to pick one or the other, like I think his kind of you know, the fact that his father was Jewish and mm-hmm. he he's, he's keeps calling back on burying your stuff with clay from the Holy Land. It's mm-hmm. like that's not no Catholic would do that mm. or, or dream of it, and like, mm-hmm. you know. They might think it was nice. Oh, that's a bit of soil from where Jesus lived. They might think that, but if, if, like that's a very Jewish mm-hmm. thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, one final question. We, do you have any inspirations for artwork for this? Do, I, do you see, because I asked you just for listeners, I, I did ask Dermot earlier if he had any ideas and he didn't. Hmm. And I said, you should do something that's kind of like horror one of my favorite images he ever did was of Steven's mother as a flesh-eating ghoul and it's very creepy and mm. I I've, that's maybe your favorite image mm-hmm. or my favorite image of yours. Yeah. Um so do do you understand why I asked you to do something creepy?
0: Yeah, it'll be a corpsey anyway. Mm-hmm. I'll do some
1: corpse. Yeah, and that in that kind of same style is what is what I'd like. You don't have to do that. Okay. That's yeah. just what I like. All right, all right. Um if you have any ideas uh Could they suggest something to you?
0: No, that's that's a bottom as well. It blobs (laughs) out when I'm drawing.
1: All right. All right. Well, then it'll be a surprise. Yeah. Okay. It'll be horrible. That's what I'm hoping for. I want something creepy. All right. Okay. Well, uh, on the note of creepy, have a good two weeks, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Tell us who you think the man in the Macintosh is.
0: Mm. It's a lanky galoot.
1: He's a lanky galoot. All right. If you have any artwork of the man in the Macintosh, send it to us. I'll, I'll put it on our Twitter, our Instagram. All right. We'll, we'll talk to you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.